This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today we're talking with ICU physician, surgical attending, Dr. Sam Case. So he's on. He's a former classmate of mine from Wayne State University. He's on the front lines of the COVID epidemic in Michigan right now. So we're just going to jump right into his clinical observations, how it presented in Detroit, kind of the course of what he's been seeing. And there is a Facebook post going around. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it just talks about the treatment course and clinical course of the COVID virus. But he actually knows the physician that posted it. So we'll run through that and see how it correlates what he's actually seeing every day. Dr. Case, thank you for taking the time for this interview. The other thing that I think people should know is You've been up now for 36 hours, so I especially thank you for doing this post-call. <laughs> so I'm not responsible for some of the comments that may come out of my mouth. We <laughs> <laughs> can end it up, but that's fine. So what did this look like when it started up? In Where are you practicing now? I'm the trauma director and surgical critical care director at Beaumont Hospital in Dearborn, Michigan. And at least I've been seeing social media posts from Beaumont Hospital and all of the major hospitals in, in the news. And right now it's 3-31-2020. How close does it mirror how bad it is in that area? It is definitely getting bad every day, a little worse. We are, I mean, I, you know, I can, I can actually give you exact numbers of where we stand as a hospital system now. So in the, in the Beaumont system, there are currently about 900 patients who are admitted throughout the Beaumont system in Detroit that are actually positive for the coronavirus, for COVID-19, about 180 to 200 that are waiting for test results to return who are inpatient. And we've got about 500 patients who have been tested and are negative throughout the system. Uh, that doesn't include patients who are admitted for other reasons, who are not, were not tested at all. But of the patients that were tested, you know, about, about 900 are positive, about 200 are waiting for results, and about 500 are negative. What's your ICU situation like? It's different at all the hospitals in the system. Uh, we have eight hospitals throughout the system, anywhere from an 1,100-bed hospital in Royal Oak, which is the biggest hospital in Michigan and the biggest in our system. We're the second biggest hospital in the system at 650 beds. We're the fourth biggest hospital in Michigan and the second in our Beaumont system. And we get to as small as Wayne Hospital, which is, I think, about 250 beds max. And you're running which hospital? Dearborn, the Dearborn campus, which is the former Oakwood Hospital for those who the Detroit area. And how, what's your ICU bed status at that specific hospital? Our ICU bed status is filling up. Uh, we are essentially, we have kept one unit of 16 beds as a quote, quote clean unit. Uh, we have a 16 bed ICU, which is completely full of intubated COVID positive patients. Uh, we have another 16 bed ICU, which is essentially full of COVID positive intubated patients. We have the luxury of having a very large step down unit, uh, which can take up 30 patients, single rooms, or we can double them up if we need to. Uh, it's a step down unit, which can function as an ICU. All the nurses there are trained as actually critical care nurses. Uh, so we are filling that up. And today, actually, we even opened up our PACU, the post anesthesia care unit to start admitting patients. And uh, we're keeping it 
as a clean unit for now, but we're admitting patients to the PACU. What healthcare precautions are you taking to prevent the spread to healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, medical assistants, janitors, et cetera? So the hospital, obviously every hospital in the country is running through this problem that's dealing with COVID, is dealing with uh, a real short supply of PPE. The PPEs that are the hardest to get a hold of, PAPRs, which are you know, positive air pressure uh, respirators that some systems have. Uh, I can say when I worked in, I did my training in critical care at the University of Michigan in their ECMO unit. And they have, they have an abundance of PAPRs because of dealing with the H1N1 epidemic. They, they were stockpiled of that, but most hospitals have very few, if any. Uh, those are the best devices to use, obviously. Uh, anything ranging from that to an N95 mask to uh, just a regular surgical mask. Uh, we really were in a bind last week, uh, again, because no one was really prepared for it, and supplies were, just, there was such short supply internationally. We were able to secure a pretty large order for the entire system um, using various connections that we had. I, I had a couple connections that I used, and some other physicians had some connections, and we were able to secure quite a few masks. We have an influx now coming in anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to a couple million over the next couple weeks here. So we're actually doing okay with our N95 masks. We are asking providers to use them more than, to be honest, more than I think they should be using them. You know, the reusing of a mask throughout an entire shift instead of, you know, using it maybe uh, for a patient interaction course, maybe an hour or two and then throw it away. We're asking nurses to try to preserve them for an entire shift and physicians as well. We have cohorted patients, as most hospitals are doing, you know, sectioning off patients as a, this is a, this is a COVID floor, there's a non-COVID floor, and not allowing anyone who's not taking care of those patients or part of the COVID team, the medical or surgical COVID team, to actually enter those units to minimize utilization of masks. So instead of a private care, primary care physician seeing his own patient, there's a rounding physician for that service, the COVID service that sees the patient for him, so that we minimize the utilization of of PPE. So you've sectioned it off where you have physicians taking care of non-COVID patients, and then you have a COVID team. Exactly. So we started out with one ICU and one floor of the hospital that was COVID. And uh, we have 10 floors in the hospital. The patient care floors are essentially two, three, four, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and actually 10. We also have an SICU circulating on the first floor, but, um, we started off as just the third floor as a COVID floor, then it went to floor eight, and now essentially every floor in the hospital except for the fifth floor is uh, being used as a COVID floor. So there's – how are you dealing – there's a shortage of healthcare professionals right now. Yes. How are you dealing yes. with that at your hospital? Well, we are doing okay right now. There are hospitals in this area that are – running into trouble because a lot of agency nurses who come in as contingent nurses to work for us have been redirected to go work in New York. So some hospitals in the area are suffering with staffing. We currently are okay. We're using outpatient resources that are shut down. So nurses, advanced practice providers who and MAs who generally work in a clinic are now coming into the hospital setting and working bedside. We're using our CRNA staff to because we're not operating, the CRNA staff is now doing a lot of the screening in the hospital. They're taking a lot of extra shifts to help with intubations because we'll have, there's days when we intubate 18 patients in a day. 
so it's so we have extra anesthesia teams available for doing that. Also, CRNAs are going to be helping to manage the PACU patients because we might start using the actual anesthesia ventilator, anesthesia machines as ventilators, and the CRNAs will be the ones managing those vents. So it's just looking at all of your resources, putting them into a labor pool and utilizing utilizing everyone uh, as best as possible, whatever their skill set is, trying to trying to utilize their skill set and put them in the appropriate place to help take care of these patients. So so there's a Facebook post that's been floating around and I read it and it, it the way it's written, it's clearly written by someone who's clinical. So it turns out you actually know the ER physician in New Orleans that wrote this post. And so who is, you know the ER physician that wrote the Facebook post that we're going to discuss, correct? Yeah, he, he works at he works at uh, LSU in, in New Orleans, and he he discusses kind of the, the the course that they've been seeing in New Orleans. I can tell you the patients that we're seeing here it fairly accurately discusses the course of these patients. Generally, in the first few days to ten days, they come in after an exposure, they start developing some symptoms, um, and they're often like flu like flu type symptoms, so fevers, the headaches, the fatigue, they get some back pain, a little bit of neck pain, maybe. A dry cough is not is very common, as is shortness of breath and sore throat. The shortness of breath doesn't seem to develop until about day four, five, six after symptoms develop. So they first start kind of with that little sore throat and cough, and it progresses to eventual shortness of breath. And what seems interesting is there's loss of smell as well. Yeah, that's actually uh, you know I, interestingly one of my friends is a one of my friends is a physician in another hospital and called me yesterday freaking out because he suddenly couldn't smell anything. And I asked him about some other symptoms. He had a couple other symptoms, had a little bit of a headache. He had a resident that works with him who was sick and is out with COVID. So I'm pretty sure he's developed, he's actually a, a, been affected with the COVID virus. But his first thing that he noticed was actually a loss of smell. And he said, I can't taste anything, which was interesting. So around day 10 then, um, once it, this virus sets up, there's a cytokine storm that leads to acute respiratory distress, uh, multi-organ yes. failure. Can you talk about that? Yeah, not all patients seem to develop this. This is these are the patients that tend to get sicker. We found that it seems it seems that patients that present with abdominal symptoms, the diarrhea, the abdominal pain, some vomiting, uh, they seem to have a more severe clinical course. Uh, that's still being looked at. But I can tell you just from the patients I've admitted, those that tell me that they had abdominal symptoms prior to coming to the, ho- coming to the hospital, they generally are much sicker coming in. It seems like their presentation is a couple days later as well. So, and, see, so from what I'm hearing then, when people get sick early on, it t- doesn't tend to go well. Right. Yeah, it starts off as mild symptoms and it progresses over the first five days. And by day five of symptoms, they're usually feeling really significantly short of breath. If they if they come to the hospital, they've gotten to the point of significant short of breath, and then and that is often seen on imaging studies as well, CAT scans, X-rays. Although I will say that some of the CAT scans and X-rays don't really correlate with the patient's clinical course. Sometimes we see relatively benign imaging studies, and patients are horribly sick. And sometimes you see CT scans that look classic COVID and bilateral peripheral infiltrates that you know that that comprises that take up a significant portion of the lung parenchyma and they do okay. They don't end up in an ICU. They just come in feeling sick. So, but I will say the patients that have worsening C, worse X-rays and CTs generally are sicker. But, but I've I've seen the exact opposite where patients have horrendous-looking CT scans and are do okay, and they get discharged. So, and how are they developing renal failure? That is likely from the cytokine storm that happens. Uh, it's we we do try to keep these patients on the dry side because the last thing you want is for them to develop 
pulmonary edema on top of this interstitial pneumonia that they have. The interstitial pneumonia is complicated enough to deal with on its own. If you compound that by developing significant pulmonary edema, then management becomes much more difficult. So we do keep patients a little on the drier side, but even the patients who seem to be euvolemic throughout their hospital stay do tend to develop uh, renal renal insufficiency and renal failure. You know, we, we have a line team in the hospital. It's a surgical line team that I'm in charge of. The residents do it. Uh, I mean, our resident right now is running around doing about seven lines in the ICU. And of those seven lines, three of them are putting catheters for dialysis, dialysis catheters. And we put in probably three to five dialysis catheters a day on these patients. And then it looks, I'm going off this Facebook post, that the, um, yeah. they also develop diabetic ketoacidosis. Yeah, one, th- one thing we find is that patients who are hyperglycemic tend to be sicker. It seems that hypertension, hypertension and, and uh, diabetes is, is a kind of a poor predictive, uh, predicts, predicts poor outcomes in these patients. Um, interesting in the China, in China, they look, they look at this in China and they see a history of cardiac disease tend to be the worst risk factor for many of these patients. But what we're seeing here is that patients with hypertension and diabetes tend to have a little bit worse outcome. You know, as time goes on, we'll be able to tell you exactly how significant that is. But I can tell you that most of the patients I have admitted are diabetic and hypertensive. Many of them are on ACE inhibitors. Uh, There was initial thought that ACE inhibitors were worsening patient outcomes. Some other studies have shown that they're not as significant. American Heart Association has has recommended continuation of ACE inhibitors. But I can just tell you from my own experience that the patients I take care of, most of them are on an ACE inhibitor, which is just interesting. It could be just coincidental, but there seems to be some correlation. And does that have something to do with changing the physiology. Some, some things, is there a protective factor in the lung that the ACE inhibitor is disrupting? Hard to know. That, that is a complicated question because it could be correlational or it could be causing. Exactly. Exactly. You're, are you seeing that, because in China they're reporting 50% cardiac involvement. So is this new onset cardiac involvement, like myocarditis, pericarditis, CHF? So in the, the chief of infectious disease society of China actually did a Zoom conference a couple days ago through, the university, through Stanford University and was talking about the experience in China, why Shanghai was relatively spared versus, versus Wuhan and other areas, and did discuss that the cardi- a history of cardiac disease led to poor outcomes in, in the patient. That was the highest risk factor in the Chinese population, and it was mainly due to myocarditis. So myocarditis, she explained, can happen in patients who had no, history of, no prior history of cardiac disease or patients who did have it. And those that did have a prior history of cardiac disease tend to have worsening, out, worsening outcomes and more, more significant myocarditis. And for so, anyone who doesn't have a medical background, can you explain what myocarditis is? Inflammation of the myocardium. Basically, viral, viral inflammation, the virus causes a severe inflammatory response within the myocardium of the heart and can restrict, can restrict contraction of the heart, decrease blood pressure, obviously. Patients get significantly hypotensive. We see this like within this, within this cytokine storm. Suddenly, the patients get severely hypotensive and you know, it looks like a septic picture, but then their fevers will go away, their white count will improve, and they're still hypotensive. So it seems like there's some underlying, and it seems like there's some underlying cardiac dysfunction that ensues from the actual infection. Is there anything you can do for the cytokine storm? I mean, intrinsically, could you just fl- give them a ton of fluids and flush it out or put them on mm-hmm. dialysis or something? Well, we do put them on dialysis. Unfortunately, like I said, the fluid is fluid is bad because these patients will, they will develop a CHF picture and they get hypotensive, often, often atrial fibrillation. So they have significant cardiac issues. And so giving them a lot of fluid in the, in the face of CHF and AFib can actually exacerbate pulmonary, pulmonary edema, which makes their respiratory issues much worse. 
much more difficult to manage. And uh, so the ARDS is much more complicated in that situation. And are you doing anything with troponins? Yeah. So, you know, we checked troponins, but for some reason, these patients seem to be hypercoagulable as well, again, for unknown reasons. So we're putting many of these patients on heparin drips. They're finding an autopsy. A lot of patients have microembolic disease throughout the lung. So uh, they're checking D-dimers. D-dimers can be extremely high. Placing patients on heparin drips uh, empirically, just based on a high D-dimer. Often when patients come with elevated troponins, the cardiologists are not cathing these patients. They put them on, they may give them TPA, put them on heparin drip, and try to see if they can avoid a cath in these patients with some success. TPA has, in some centers, they're, they're, looking, they're doing studies looking at the use of TPA in these situations, and they're seeing some success with TPA. can help avoid PEs or worsening cardiac issues. It's all, it sounds almost like they're in a DIC type yeah. situation. Yeah, exactly. With elevated D-dimers and cardiac issues, absolutely. And the hypercoagulability. So based on, again, this post... So it looks like the white blood cell count is low, lymphocytes are low, platelets are lower yes. than normal. How often are you seeing co-infections with, with... We haven't really seen a lot of that yet, but it's still early. Uh, you know, the sickest patients have been coming in for probably the past week. We're about one week into real bad infection, real bad illness. We saw a couple of patients before that, but, you know, about mid last week is when we really started to see an influx of very sick patients and it's been increasing every day. So we haven't seen a lot of significant co-infection. I'd expect to see more, to be honest with you. Are you tracking any specific uh, lab tests to track the course of the disease, like interleukin-6, D-dimers, et cetera? We just started checking IL-6s. We still don't know enough to know if it's helpful, uh, but we are tracking it. We are checking it. Um, what about the LFTs? Liver function? LFTs, yeah, a lot of these patients, a lot of these patients develop liver failure well, uh, or significantly elevated LFTs. Uh, so if patients come in with already a history of liver failure, that portends a much worse outcome for them. How fast are you intubating people when they come in? Like, What is your threshold to intubate someone? So actually, I had this discussion with the ER because most of the patients are getting admitted or getting intubated in the ER. So patients that come in and that need, if we look at our intubated population in the ICUs, probably 70% of them are getting intubated in the ER upon presentation. Uh, they come in severely short of breath, get intubated in the ER. So how long they've been sick at home, generally it's about two to three days where they've had significant shortness of breath and illness, a short, significant shortness of, breath, shortness of breath and worsening illness at home. And when we admit these patients non-intubated, it seems that within the first three days of admission, they progress to needing intubation. There is no benefit, we think, to non-invasive modes of ventilation like BiPAP, CPAP, or even high-flow nasal cannula. One of the concerns, obviously, is when you put a patient with COVID positive on these non-invasive masks or high-flow, you can help aerosolize even you, you'll cause more aerosolization of virus so it's putting the healthcare workers at greater risk so if a patient is not doing well on a few liters nasal cannula the right answer is probably not to do a high flow nasal cannula or BiPAP some people are putting face masks over the patients who are on the nasal cannulas but honestly the best thing is to just intubate that patient there seems to be some benefit to early mechanical ventilation and early recruitment on the vent versus delaying it. When you, we've been you, we've been airing inside of earlier intubation. To get right into the like a lot of the details. So when, after you intubate them, um, what's your sedation protocol for them? This is where every physician's different. Honestly, this is there's no there's no protocol in place for every patient. We, there is a national shortage of fentanyl, of propofol, of midazolam. So that is certainly a problem. Or even lorazepam. I mean there's a national shortage of of, you know, Ativan, Versed, Propofol, and Fentanyl. So many 
intensivists are using Presidex, dexmedetomidine as a sedative in these patients with some success, and even using atypical antipsychotics and other medications of that nature. One of the problems with those is, again, this is, a, this is the crazy thing about this disease is that they tend to have a little QT prolongation at baseline, which is hard to understand. And then the medications we use, like if you want to use an atypical antipsychotic, can cause QT prolongation. Putting the patient on hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin can also cause QT prolongation. Uh, if you put the patient on anti-emetics because they come in with nausea, that can cause QT prolongation. So that's one of the issues with some of those meds. But yeah, for the sedation, it is it is it is uh, it is difficult. It depends on the mode of ventilation as well. If you're doing a standard uh, an APRV mode of ventilation, it's preferable to keep the patient awake, so less sedation is needed. Patients who are on bi-level ventilation, high-pressure ventilation, generally need aggressive sedation in those situations, even paralysis on the ventilator. And how early are you starting, say, an arterial line or a central line? So this is, so that's a good question. So, you know, patients are being intubated in the, in the ER, admitted to the ICU, and then we have a line service in the hospital here that of residents, general surgical residents that are placing multiple lines in the hospital. But we have had discussion and agreed that the best time to actually do the line is probably at the time of intubation, where the intubator, whoever intubates a patient, then keeps their PPE on and places the central line. So in the emergency department, the residents who are intubating the patients stay in the room, the nurses prep the groin, and they go ahead and place a central line and an art line while they're still in their sterile precautions and and then their PPE. And again, this is a, kind of a nitpicky question, but any reason you're placing a groin central line versus like an in internal jugular? No, not, not, not a nitpicky question at all. So one of the issues is these patients go on high pressure ventilation, right? You can potentially get overinflation of of the lung, and then so making uh, placement of central lines riskier. What about the internal jugular? Even then, still safe with ultrasound, but also getting the patient getting away from the patient's face is theoretically theoretically would decrease transmission to the provider. So sure, that makes sense. And then um, I'm assuming Foley as well. Yep, Foley catheters. Again, these patients, these patients tend to be on higher pressures on the vent. Sometimes peeps of twenty twenty five, which is unheard of. <laughs> almost not unheard of, but excessively high. And we don't usually do that in normal ARDS situations, uh, but these patients seem to benefit from high peeps. So by doing that and high pressure ventilation, you can cause pneumothoraces. So putting in chest tubes, thank God we've only had about three chest tubes we've had to place since the beginning of this, with all the patients we've taken care of, but it's certainly a risk. Um, have you, have you noticed any sort of optimal pressure settings, control ventilation, pre- positive pressure ventilation? It's uh, really... I can tell you, uh, of the four patients that we have in our service, that, of the surgical ICU service that we're taking care of, and that will increase over the next week here, we have one patient who's successful on APRV, one patient successful can you on... For the, anyone who's listening, just clarify that term. Oh, it's an airway pressure release ventilation. It's, it's essentially an inverse ratio of breathing uh, where the patient is placed on a what's called a high peep and a low peep, and high peep being like 30 of pressure, 30 centimeters of water pressure, that is sustained for about six seconds. And while that patient's getting that high pressure, they actually start to breathe, over-breathe a little bit over the vent. Uh, those breaths that they take in are not ventilatory breaths, they're more recruitment breaths. It's all, think of it as the machine is giving you a positive pressure breath, and then your little inspiratory breaths are almost like negative pressure breaths that help with increasing alveolar recruitment. And then every six seconds or so, the machine releases and you exhale. And that's the CO2 dump, we call it, where they actually exhale their CO2 very quickly, very rapidly before they get another huge inhalation 
of pressure up to 30 again. So it's 30 over zero. We set a 30 high peep, zero low peep. A high peep sustained for about anywhere between five and seven seconds. The low peep, less than a second, usually 0.5, 0.6, 0.65 seconds. So the idea is trying to increase the area under the curve. If you draw it out on a piece of paper, the area under the curve correlates to the recruitment of lung. And the more area under the curve you have, theoretically, the more lung recruitment you can get, which helps with improving oxygenation of that patient. And the target um, volumes are, are, are typically lower than your, than your normal? It's, it's variable. It's variable. Some patients will get tidal volumes of 350. Some, people, some patients get tidal volumes of 1,000. As long as you keep the pressure 30 or less, you should be okay. That's the, the magic number is 30 centimeters of water. Anything above that can cause lung injury, barrel trauma. So we try to keep it below that number. Now, the issue is some of these patients, APRV doesn't work. And we're actually having to go to pressures, title either a volume control mode or a pressure control mode, depending on what works better for them, but with peeps of 20 to 25. And if you think about if your peep is at 20 or 25, and you know that you cause barrel trauma at pressures over 30, you have very little room to ventilate the patient. So, you know, you have five centimeters of water to generate any appreciable tidal volume to actually blow off CO2 and ventilate the patient. So that's where we're running into trouble. Some patients are on pressures of 35 or 40 over the 25. So we know we're causing barrel trauma, but we have no choice because we're trying to do our best to help recruit that lung and oxygenate them. Because at the end of the day, oxygenation is king. If you can't oxygenate, you can't do anything. So we take the risk of causing a little bit of barrel trauma to get that FiO2 down to 50% as soon as possible and then start working, working on weaning the PEEP. So we've had good success with it. We've had good success. I mean, many of these patients are starting PEEP is 15. They come in, I put them on just a standard event mode with a PEEP of 15. So with um, the PEEP being that high and then the pressures being that high, exactly like you said, you don't have a lot of leeway. So you're okay with the CO2 climbing a little bit? Yes. Yep. We call it permissive hypercapnia. So as you do whatever you can to improve and maximize oxygenation, the goal being to bring down the FiO2 down to 50% or less because, you know, we know anything over that can cause barrel trauma to the lung. We increase PEEP if need be to help bring down that PEEP or bring down the FiO2 as quick as possible. And when you do that, any move you make that helps oxygenation can cause ventilation to suffer. If that happens, you retain CO2. CO2 can make your blood acidotic. But if that vent mode is working, you try to minimize changes on the vent because you want them to continue to oxygenate so you can bring down that PEEP that pressure as much as possible. So the CO2 rises, we allow it to rise. We call that permissive hypercapnia. And to balance the acidosis that develops, we start them on a bicarbonate drip. And what we try to do is use a straight bicarb drip that is concentrated bicarb, does not the standard three three amps of bicarb in a, in a liter bag. This is straight bicarbonate. I'll tell, the, I'll tell the pharmacy to mix me a bag, not even mix, just fill me a bag, a 500cc bag with 10 amps of bicarb. So it's just straight bicarbonate. And you run that anywhere between 25 milliequivalents an hour to 200 sometimes if the patient's really sick. And we don't, uh, we start that generally when the pH drops below 7.28. We don't make a vent change until the pH drops below 7.2 on the bicarb drip. So, and then what's counterintuitive is that steroids tend to make it worse. Yeah, the, the Chinese experiment in Shanghai, actually, they found that steroids were beneficial in some situations this is but so this is a complicated question because when we talk about ARDS if you were to sit 100 if you were if you were to sit a, at a table with 100 intensivists and by the way this is what happened at the Society of Critical Care Medicine uh, they sat at a table with 100 different intensivists top experts in the country in intensive care and they're trying to figure out they're trying to nail down this idea of do we use steroids or do we not use steroids in ARDS and 
about 50% of them said yes and about 50% said no. So, and the reasons for why they did or why they didn't was all over the map. Generally, surgical intensivists, we tend to stay away from steroids. Medical intensivists have a tendency to use more steroids than we do for ARDS. We tend to think it causes more harm. They tend to think it causes not as much harm and can be beneficial. So the jury's still out on that. So, but again, there are the Chinese experiments. They, they, they seem that steroids were somewhat helpful and protective, but we found here in the States that steroids may in fact be detrimental and damaging. And I know this is more of an advanced uh, topic, but what about proning the patients? Well, it's not advanced. I mean, it, it, it's an advanced move, but proning is hugely important. This disease, proning a patient when you put a patient on their, on their face, mm-hmm. uh, because the idea is in a patient with, easiest way to describe this is in a patient with, with ARDS and pulmonary edema, the edema, tend, gravity tends to pull the edema backwards. So the, the gravity will pull the fluid in the lung, the edema, towards the posterior aspect of the lung and the lower lung. Blood gravity pulls blood down. So blood will try to infiltrate and perfuse that portion of the lung. But the ventilated portion of the lung is anterior because there's no blood going there and there's no edema there. That's relatively spared aspect of the lung, which is the anterior lung. So if you want to improve oxygenation and ventilation and recruitment, what you do is you flip the patient because the waterlogged posterior lung is waterlogged and doesn't ventilate well. The anterior non quote, waterlogged lung, it ventilates well. And when you flip the patient, you now redirect blood flow to that anterior lung. So now you're matching your ventilation and perfusion much better. So you get better VQ matching, you get better oxygenation, better ventilation. And then every set, every so many hours, whether it be one hour, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, every patient's different. You have to pay attention to them. You flip them back. Sometimes you can partially prone, just putting them on their side if they have a good lung or a bad lung. You put them on that side down and they do better and then flip them back. Sometimes that doesn't work. You have to fully prone them. The interesting thing about COVID is that it doesn't cause your traditional one-sided pneumonia. It's a bilateral uh, interstitial disease. It causes patchy infiltrates throughout the lung, sometimes consolidated infiltrates throughout the lung. They tend to be posterior and peripheral in the lung. And so when you f- the anterior lung seems to be spared in many situations so that may be a reason why proning works i can tell you in our experiment we've in our experience here we found that usually two or three days of proning is all you need and the patients do okay they they seem to show some improvement whereas in patients with the old traditional ards picture you may have to prone patients for a week or more until they improve what's your threshold for proning and then returning them to supine or facing up Oh, so in this disease, uh, every patient, almost every patient should be prone. They actually, some, some small studies have shown that even patients who are not on a ventilator, who are on nasal cannula at home, if, or not at home, but in the, in the hospital, if you ask them to sleep on their stomach and breathe proning themselves, even while they're not intubated, seem to have better outcomes. Again, jury's still out on that, but that is one thing that we ask some of our patients to do is try to sleep on your stomach for at least certain, you know, or, or lay on your stomach for certain hours throughout the day to see if it actually improves. And you know, some of these patients, you actually see their numbers improve right in your face. So they'll go from 92% up to 96, 97% just from proning themselves, which is really impressive, unexpected and impressive. Anything else other than proning that any tricks of the trade that you, you will do if someone's just not saturating well? Well, unfortunately, there's not much else we can do. There's some idea of using Flowland, phosphodiesterase inhibitors, you know, the Viagras, of the world, um, but most hospitals are restricting that use to uh, pulmonary hypertension. As somebody with known pulmonary hypertension, 
there doesn't seem to be a lot of benefit in these patients for using those medications. There is some, there seems to be, there seems to be some benefit to using as we've all heard about and talked about use of medications like hydroxychloroquine, um, use of azithromycin in combination. In China, they only use hydroxychloroquine. They didn't use azithromycin combination. Uh, various studies throughout the world have used both. There are probably as many studies that show benefit as there are studies that show no benefit. Um, but we are using it here in the hospital. I think most hospitals in the United States are using it. Have you seen a dramatic improvement using either the hydroxychloroquine or the azithromycin? I can say no. Um, I, I've, I've, I mean, we have patients who complete an entire course of the medications and, and stormed and coded. And so I, I, I don't know that. I don't know that it's actually helpful, but that's why we're hoping that we can do more studies to find out if it is, in fact, helpful. So for physicians that aren't as, say, seasoned as you are in the ICU, um, they're downsized to using these medications as well. Well, certainly. Certainly. They can cause cardiac arrhythmias, uh, renal issues, uh, hepatic failure can be something that can happen with these medications. But um, in general... uh, in general, they're actually they're actually generally well tolerated, uh, but and most of the side effects are pretty minimal. But patients can develop the QT prolongation and hepatotoxicity with the meds, so that's always a concern. So that's why we check LFTs, and and the 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 disease process in and of itself can cause hepatic failure and elevated LFTs. So these medications. Plaquenil specifically can actually increase that and worsen that situation. So, have you noticed any benefit from albuterol? Not necessarily, no. Um, and also, the problem with albuterol is that uh, it can actually, in a nebulized form, can actually increase aerosolization of the virus. So, if given, it should be given. Um, it should not be given as a nebulizer, just a regular inhaler. Uh, we'll actually take it, open up the ET tube and just puff several puffs right into the ET tube of, the, of an inhaler. But it does put everyone in the room at risk. It does put everyone at risk in the room when you do that. On a theoretical, this is more of a theoretical question. So if there's a cytokine storm and often the cytokines are coming from the mast cells, then theoretically, if you gave them, say, chromium sodium, could that be a benefit? Yeah, yeah. No, I honestly don't know if it's even been tried. That's a good question. I, don't, I actually don't know if it's been tried. Do you know of any studies that, that show it's I, I don't know if it's been tried or not, but... Yeah. I, I do know of some patients that do really well with it when they have allergies. And it sounds like this is setting up an ARDS type DIC cytokine storm. So if you could yeah. stabilize some of those inflammatory cells, then that might help pacify the course. And the chromin, it's, it's typically well tolerated and minimal side effects. Yeah, I think it was used actually in uh, during the H1N1 epidemic. I think it was actually used in those patients because some of them would have would have a cytokine storm type picture. But I don't know that it's... I don't know that anyone's using it in coronavirus. Do you know if it had any benefit in the um, H1N1? I don't think it did have much benefit, no. But it was tried. But it was tried. Which would be interesting because this disease is it's different than the other. Um, so we, now that we've gone through all the different treatment pathways, what what's can you run through some clinical scenarios? Like what's the best case um, scenario to maybe the worst case scenario? You know, uh, the best case scenarios are the patients that come in, they're positive, they go home, they shelter in place for two weeks and they're fine. Uh, we have, we have several employees who've tested positive who we sent home and they're doing okay. 
Um, most of them are mild. You see these celebrities who are sick, they're at home, you know, they're affected, but they don't get sick. They're posting on Facebook or social media every day and they don't look ill at all. Uh, to the patients that, you know, come in coding, crashing and, uh, and dying like upon presentation in the emergency department. And then we have patients that come in. This is the, the, you know, the, I, I scare people, but the scariest is the patients who come in who look okay. You send them home. They look great. They're positive. They look fine. And they call and say they feel a little sicker a couple days later. No problem. Stay home. And then two days later, they come in in extremis and code and die. So and, when, when they get sick, they get sick fast. Yeah, exactly. And that's the hard thing is predicting predicting which patient is going to turn and get sick quickly. Is that the cytokine storm that's causing this? Is there something else associated, associated with this disease that causes such a rapid, a rapid change in the clinical course? Hard to know. And that's, I think, going to be one of the keys to treating this is trying to identify which patients are going to have a poor outcome and maybe and trying to identify when they might start to storm. And is that what's causing all these significant issues? Because if we can catch that before it happens, then we could potentially save lives. Can you think of any of, I know that this is a newer, it's a new disease. Everyone I've spoken to, this is a new disease. No one really knows. But from yeah. your experience and what you've heard from your colleagues, what are some of the biggest risk factors for that poor prognosis? Uh, so the r- biggest risk factors, again, I, I certainly history of heart disease, a history of pulmonary disease, patients who are older. So as the age increases from six, from 50 to 60 to 70 to 80 to 90, the risk increases. Patients with hypertension and diabetes, especially those that are poorly controlled diabetics with hyperglycemia, patients who had previous MIs, cardiac, cardiac disease, coronary artery disease, tend to be in, uh, tend to have worse outcomes. The, again, there was evidence that sh- there was some literature that showed that ACE inhibitors worsened outcomes and some that show that it doesn't. Most of the cardiologists I speak with have recommended that you continue with the ACE inhibitors. I will tell you, I took my dad off his ACE inhibitor and put him on a calcium channel blocker <laughs> for a year. I said, dad, you're just going to go on this for a year. But it, you know, there's, there's no good sign. There's no good data to tell us which way to go with that. And the mechanism that by which an ACE inhibitor would cause worsening outcomes is not clear either. So, so the recommendation is still to continue your ACE inhibitors if you are on one. Also patients who have antecedent GI symptoms, they have the GI symptoms before they present with the respiratory illness and the fevers they tend to have a poor outcome as well. So, but to make it clear for anyone who's listening to this, this is not just a disease of elderly people with comorbid conditions because no. people are also seeing younger folks getting this as well. Yep. We, we have we have patients in the hospital from 18 years of age to 98 years of age who have COVID. I can tell you, lost patients, a 32-year-old, 52-year-old, 70-year-old, 90-year-old. So right across the spectrum, we've lost. Now, the majority of the patients that we've lost are older and as they get older, the risk is higher. But anyone over 65 is a significant, significantly increased risk. And anyone over 80 is at a almost, uh, if they get intubated over 80, it's, it's, we were finding that the, the mortality rate may be as high as 80% in that population. So if you could give advice, so I'm in Wisconsin. Um, yeah. If you could give advice to a hospital, before, and, and we really haven't had many cases in Wisconsin yet. If you could give advice to the hospitals that have not quite seen that quick ramp up in yes. the COVID cases, what advice would you have? Uh, start to form your task forces now. Start to ramp up your PPEs now. Try to try to uh, gather as much resource as many resources as you can. Ventilators. Understand where your strengths are. Understand where your weaknesses are. Talk to your staff. This is scary for the staff. I mean. These great, you know, and we as physicians are on the front lines, yes, but really it's it's the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the medical assistants, the nursing assistants who are the, really truly at the front lines dealing with this. The CRNAs who are in the room intubating patients, sometimes with 
sometimes with less than adequate uh, protective devices. In our hospital, they're well protected, but in some places they're not. Um, ER doctors who are having to deal with these patients coming in through the ER. But really, it's the nurses, it's the nurses, the respiratory therapists at the bedside who are the most at risk, and they're the real heroes in this in this situation. So preparing them for what's to come and addressing their needs, their issues, their fears, providing them with adequate PPE. Provide your providers with adequate PPE uh, is a is a big one. Protect the head. In Shanghai, they found that the best method to prevent the spread of this disease was actually head protection. So yeah, information. I think if hospitals get together and start themselves and physicians start spreading the word through public service announcements, social media, telling people to stay indoors, letting them understand the importance of staying indoors would be very important. Anything that you think people should know, hospital administrators, other physicians should know that I haven't asked? Oh, that's a, that you haven't asked? That's a, there's so much with this disease. I, you know, I, I think, um, I think understanding that this is not going away anytime soon. Hopefully we'll see the peak soon, but the disease itself is going to last for some time. And I really think, like I said before, understanding what resources you have, stockpiling the necessary resources to take care of your patients and your your employees, your providers is important. And uh, and just trust and belief that in the end, we'll be okay. This This disease does kill people. It is scary. It is scary how some patients turn so quickly and die. But really, I, what I tell people is the real fear is not that you're going to die from this disease because the only people who are dying are obviously the ones who get intubated. And there's a small percentage of people who get intubated who are stricken with this with this virus. But it's just the sheer numbers of people that are getting sick. It's a very infectious virus. And, it, and because it lingers and harbors within your body for to 14 days, with no symptoms, that's sort of the the concerning the concerning part of all of this. So, if patients aren't staying at home, if citizens aren't staying at home and sheltering in place and socially distancing themselves, we are going to we are going to see an increased number of infected patients. You know, we keep talking about flattening the curve, but in in many situations, like in New York, it's not a curve; it's a, it's a wave. It's like a tsunami. I mean, it, it, the exponential increase in in cases is is uh, impossible to deal with for New York and big cities like Detroit, Chicago, Houston, uh, Los Angeles, all these cities are Philly. All these cities are dealing with this issue now. New Orleans, avoid gatherings. New Orleans is probably having a big issue because they had Mardi Gras just passed. And I have many friends who were at Mardi Gras and a couple of them are now sick with COVID. Likely that's where they caught it. So avoiding gatherings at all is important. So then there's also some, some buzz in the social media that there's some talk that people should prioritize the economy and we should just go back to work to move the economy along. Um, what are your thoughts? I, on that? I, I mean, so this is, to me, this is absolutely not a political issue at all, but what people need to understand is that obviously the economy is important, but I don't think that people in the real world understand what we mean by overwhelming the medical system with influx of patients if we don't socially distance ourselves. We are functioning. Our ER sees usually about 100 people. There's usually about 100 people in the ER on any given day, 100 or more, okay? 100 to 120 patients in the emergency department on any given day. Hospital is always full. We're always at black status, meaning we're just waiting for patients to get discharged so we can admit patients from the ER. Patients sit in the post-operative area after surgery 
for hours waiting for a bed dope. Right now, we've stopped all electric surgery. We've stopped all non-essential surgery. We've even changed the way we manage things that we never would have considered not operating on in the past. And we're not operating on those, those patients. Many of those patients require inpatient admission after surgery. ER, instead of 100 patients or 120 patients in the ER, we have anywhere, anywhere between 20 and 40 patients in the ER at any one time. So our ER, the ER volume is significantly decreased. But we are still outstripping our, we're still stripping our resources. We don't have enough PPE to take care of our people. We don't have enough ventilators to take care of our people. We are, our, our ventilator utilization goes up every single day. We will run out of ventilators. So, and that is when we're functioning without any surgery, essentially, and 30% in the emergency department. So if people don't take this seriously, we will overwhelm every hospital in the area and we will turn into Italy where patients are dying at home because there is no hospital bed for them to go sit in. There's no, no one there to take care of them. Uh, Chicago. McCormick Center has 3,000 beds to take care of patients and are soliciting providers to come take care of patients in, the, in, in their center. Uh, the Navy has brought a ship into New York to take care of these patients. This is real. And if people are going to put economics over the health, uh, the public health crisis itself, we're going to be in big trouble. Well, many more people are going to die than needed to die because we just can't take care of them because we don't have the supplies and the resources to take care of them. And that's what I just hope people can truly understand. So to close off this, this podcast, and again, thank you for your time. And again, to reiterate that you've been out for 36 hours now dealing with this at the hospital. And to close, you made a, a very touching point to talk about taking care of the nurses and the respiratory therapists and the medical assistants and everyone else. But how are you dealing with this? You've been out for a long time and you, you're kind of the captain of that ship, like unfortunately dealing with patients that... Sometimes you can't help. Honestly, a lot of this is a lot of this is meetings, um, administrative issues because you know we don't have we don't have the guidelines, protocols necessary to deal with these issues we're dealing with now. Or if so, it's on a lesser scale. And when many of these things were drawn up, it was it was drawn up in the situation of maybe a mass casualty situation, explosion, uh, you know, a mass casualty terrorist attack in your city, or a hurricane or tornado or something of that nature earthquake. Nobody really plans for a pandemic. And I think most hospitals didn't plan properly for a pandemic because in other situations, if we lack resources, we can easily get resources from other hospitals, right? If Michigan was, if Detroit was hit with a massive storm that injured a lot of people and increased the hospital volumes, well, we could get resources from elsewhere, from Ohio, Indiana, Chicago, wherever it may be to help us out. In this situation, we're all in this. Everybody's struggling, everyone's suffering, and everybody's going through the same thing with shortages. So I spend the majority, much of my day in meetings, uh, conference call meetings with ICU doctors, ER doctors, trying to come up with solutions to all these problems that we're encountering. So that's why I say the nurses are the ones at the bedside nonstop. We try to minimize how much we round in the ICU and try to see only the, you know, re-round on only the sick patients that don't seem to be progressing. And so it's, it's challenging. It is, it's stressful and it's, it's, uh, my day is full of anxiety, but, but do we deal with it? I mean, I guess it's, it's what we're here for. It's what we do. And I can't say enough about the nurses that, Nurse and respiratory therapist. God bless them. Again, that I, I, my fear is mostly for them getting sick. Because if our best nurses all get sick, trouble. You know. Also, you know, if your ICU doctor gets sick and uh, next man up, you know, you, you always wonder is is the second wave of physicians and nurses as adequately prepared to take care of this problem as the first wave. So if people keep people want to continue uh, not to not abide by the stay stay in place and shelter in place uh, warnings and social distancing. 
they're going to overwhelm us. You'll see most of our first responders and physicians and nurses, first line, first line physicians and nurses get sick. And then you're left with the second and third and fourth line. And, you know, that's, uh, I always wonder who's going to take care of me when I'm, when I'm sick. If me and all my fellow intensivists get sick, who takes care of us? I, I would like to say, Chris, there is a, for anybody who's interested, the SCCM, Society of Critical Care Medicine, in an effort to help non-critical care physicians provide critical care support to their patients. They have actually released the FCCS course for free online on the SCCM website. It's called Fundamentals of Critical Care Support. It's a two-day course, usually costs like 700 bucks, 800 bucks. Um, it's a great course. I love teaching it. I was a director of this course for many years. It's, um, it's a really good course and you, you it teaches you the fundamentals of critical care. You can go online and take this course, the exact course that I would teach you can take it, get a certificate out of it, and it teaches you the fundamentals and the basics of taking care of ICU patients. So if you're a hospitalist, you can help your critical care colleagues by maybe taking care of the less sick patients, uh, and they can take care of the more critically ill patients. So I would encourage people to go to the sccm.com website. And we'll include that in the show notes for this podcast. So Sam, I know you've been out for a long time. Thank you again for the fantastic work you're doing in Detroit, your patients, your staff, the hospital. They're lucky to have you. Thank you, Chris. Good luck, and uh, I, I sincerely hope that you guys don't get hit with this virus as bad as other places have, but be prepared. And we're always a resource for you, you know, if you guys ever need help. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.